Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. Today, I'll be talking to Joel Waldfogel about his book, Digital Renaissance, What Data and Economics Tell Us About the Future of Popular Culture. So, Joel, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I, uh, I'm a, an economics professor at the University of Minnesota. I teach at the business school, the Carlson School, and I also hang out in the economics department here uh, as well. Okay. Um, so your book is called Digital Renaissance. Um, what, is the, what is the central question of your book? Why, what's, what are you trying to figure out with it? Well, so the, the question is how technological changes have, that have brought us digitization, and that word probably needs a little bit of definition, whether on balance it's given us a, you know something good or something bad. And now, of course, the title of the book kind of gives it away. Renaissance is probably good. But to, to get to the story, I mean, basically this, this gets set in motion around 1999 when Napster arrives and people figure out ways to, to consume music without paying for it, or as we used to say, steal. And, and you know, so what's stealing going to do? Well, stealing means less revenue, res, less revenue means maybe smaller incentives to produce in the first place. And so maybe the, the whole kind of supply of music dries up and, and that would be a digital disaster. And, and of course, there was a digital disaster. There was a collapse of revenue, especially in music, but there were big piracy concerns in other industries as well. What's interesting is that wasn't the whole story. Digitization also meant reduction in cost of producing, distributing, and even promoting new products in music, books, television, movies, and, and others. And so what, what the other thing that happened was, again, this, this reduction in cost. And even though there was less revenue available, say, in music from selling recorded music, it became so much easier to create and distribute stuff that we actually saw really nothing short of an explosion of new production in music and all these other industries. And so that's what sets this all in motion. Now, so far, it's not, it's not a renaissance. It's just a big pile of stuff, but uh, at least so far in the story. But, but that's, that's kind of what got it going. Okay. So, um, but like, yeah, that, I guess that's the question. Like, how, you know, sure, there's a big pile of stuff, but like, if no one can make any real money at this business, then, you know, is it just a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, inexperienced garage bands cranking out something that no one wants to listen to? Yeah, so there's a bunch of that, but here, here's a, the thing about uh, about new products in general, but in, especially in cultural products. At the time that the uh, products get created, what you might say the time the investment gets made, it's extremely hard to predict which ones will turn out to be useful or valuable or even good, depending on which word you like. And so let's suppose we have some innovation that, uh, in this case, a cost reduction that allows a whole bunch more stuff to get created. It's true that we'll get a whole bunch of stuff that isn't very good, nobody really cares about. But because of this unpredictability, there will be some of this stuff that turns out to be to be quite good. And that's exactly what's happened. So a huge explosion in the number of new products and a non-trivial fraction of them are turn out to be appealing to consumers. And the evidence for this idea is that if you look at bestsellers, whether it be in books or in music or in movies, you see that a, a large and, and importantly, a growing share of the, of the successful products are products that only came into existence and became available to consumers because of digitization. So, so to be specific, let's take books. You know, books that there's, you know, how do you publish a book if no publisher wants to take you? Well, since digitization, you self-publish the book. Traditionally, self-publishing was the province of, you know, sort of hacks and, 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 and losers, so to speak. Uh, and 
True, many books that are self-published aren't so good. But what's fascinating is that a large fraction of successful books today in today's market are books that originally came to market as self-published. In romance, it was as high as 40% in just books generally, around 10 or 15%. And again, that's kind of astounding when you think about the New York publishers who traditionally controlled all, all of what we had ought to and would be able to read if you know a, a, a fifth or a sixth of the books that are ultimately succeeding, not just being produced, but succeeding in the sense of being bestsellers are books that entirely circumvented or largely circumvented those traditional gatekeepers. That's kind of a revolution. Well, but I mean, then then what were, were the gatekeepers just uh, holding us back all this time? So should we resent, you know, Disney and MGM and uh, the big publishing houses and uh, music industry? Were they were they just holding down all this great talent uh, or well, did, did they add value in some way? Well, I think I think it's it's wrong to resent them. I think they're they're patrons of the arts. In, in businesses where it's inherently very difficult to predict what's going to succeed. So they make big investments. And the music industry still would make this argument. And I think it's true. It's a very investment-intensive industry. They have to spend a bunch of money developing talent and producing stuff and bringing it to market. And most of it fails. Uh, again, not because they're bad at it, just because it's inherently difficult to see who's going to win. So they've been patrons of the arts, Medici's, if you will, of the 20th, 21st century, but doing a very challenging job. And I would say they were doing it in an old-fashioned way that was quite expensive. The music industry still says, hey, it costs us a million dollars to bring a new, a new, an album by a new artist to market. And to some people, that sounds insane because after all, your iPhone has a pretty serviceable music studio on it and uh, you can get global distribution almost for free at this point. So the notion that it would cost a million dollars seems outmoded. I mean, again, but to be fair, the traditional way of doing it required producing high, you know, sort of high production value stuff, making a video, getting it on radio, getting it into stores, much of which isn't really important anymore or necessary for a product to find, uh, you know, a, a fan base. So, so now we don't need them anymore. Well, I think that's, that's, that's right. I mean, that said, let's, again, let's be a little fair to these incumbent guys. They're still pretty good at selling stuff that has wide appeal. So once you are a wild, wide appeal type artist, you probably do want to be with a traditional type of an intermediary. So Taylor Swift, she's still quite happy, I think, to be with a traditional kind of an intermediary. And even these self-published books that succeed, what almost invariably happens with them is they get picked up by a traditional publisher who then promotes them in the ways that they are quite good at. So it's not that there's no role for these traditional players. It's just that we don't in some sense, we don't need them to do the exploring. They can do the, you know, the kind of the pushing of predictably successful stuff, whereas the the, the minor league development of talent can happen uh, almost on a freelance basis. And, and there's no intermediary saying, no, you don't even get to try. Everybody gets to try. Most of it's terrible, but a bunch of good things uh, emerge from that process. But then it seems like, you know, certainly ever since Napster, the the big firms and a lot of industries have been complaining and, you know, seeing their, their revenues declining and, uh, you know, making it sound like, you know, artists will not survive because you can't make a living in this business anymore. Um, right. Is that is that not true? Well, you know, there are elements of truth and, and not truth to all of these things. So first of all, it is absolutely true that revenue in recorded music just collapsed after Napster. It fell globally 50%, 70%, something like that. And, and it didn't really recover in any substantial way until about three years ago. And what happened about three years ago was the, the final, finally the success of subscription sales and basically through um, uh, Spotify and, and Apple Music. And, and that really was kind of a revelation because now if you think about uh, all the pieces of music, and there are something like 50 million of them, uh, you know, most of which you would never buy if they were a dollar a piece, 
but you're happy to, you know, add another tenth of a cent to what you're willing to pay per month for access to, to that and the sum of that across all the possible songs. It's quite worth it for many people to pay $10 a month for subscription access to essentially everything. And that that miracle of bundling, which, you know, by the way, microeconomists have been teaching bundling to you know, bored students for decades. And finally, it's interesting again. But that miracle of bundling really caused a rebound in revenue. We saw it hugely in music. I mean, of course, revenue is way below where it used to be. On the other hand, there are very few costs associated with producing or with distributing. You know, you don't put things on physical product and truck them to stores anymore. So it's not entirely clear that profits are off in some real sense. Okay, so so basically, yes, revenue went down. On the other hand, revenue is back up. If you talk to songwriters, a lot of them complain about not being paid very much right now. That said, gosh, it's not like they've stopped producing things. There's been a huge increase in the number of, of pieces of music, not only written, but recorded and, and, and distributed. So it's, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic because after all, we in the academic business are facing competition from digital, well, versions of education, and it's no fun to face competition. But uh, if you just look at, if you measure the health of the industry by whether it's producing a lot of stuff that consumers find valuable industry these industries all seem pretty healthy to me so okay so you say you say on on the whole they seem healthy in terms of their production like how do we why don't you walk us through uh, an example from one of the industries you looked at i know your uh your book you look at the the music industry movies uh television and books in, in some detail why don't you pick one of those and just tell us like how do you actually measure like sure there's lots of stuff out there but like you know isn't it all like you know a lot of amateur garbage. So how do you decide, like, if there's 50 times as much amateur garbage, how do you figure out what's what's really worthwhile? Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a good question. So there are two broad ways to think about this. One is to ask, uh, of the, the new products that are, you might say, coming from left field, the new products that are making their way through that couldn't have made it through before, are those making up a big share of what turns out to be successful? In music, Probably the nice analog to that would be uh, independent music that is not on major record labels. And, and indeed, it's true it's since 2000 or so, the share of sales uh, accounted for by uh, independent label music has has increased substantially. It used to be, I mean, it depends how you measure it, but it used to be something like 5 or 10%. Now it's more like 20, 25%. Again, it depends how you measure it. But that says that this stuff that is made possible and whose availability is made possible by digitization becomes a big share of what is actually successful and valuable to consumers. So that's one sense in which digitization has allowed uh, uh, useful stuff for consumers to be be made available. There's another kind of comparison to make, which is a a more aggressive one in some sense, but to say, well, all right, how about this, this period since digitization? How good are the vintages of products produced recently compared to the vintages of products produced a long time ago? This is harder, but but there are ways to try to get at it. So in, in music, one thing one can look at is the share of, of sales accounted for uh, by, by music of different vintages. So say during the year 2020, if you just look at what's being sold, you'll see a lot of stuff was made last year and then kind of decreasing over time into, into the past looks just like depreciation. So, you know, and, and that's just because people get tired of stuff as it gets older. But if you have that kind of data, that is by time and vintage for multiple years, then you can ask questions like, well, compared to a usual vintage when it's four years old, how much do the vintages produced since digitization? How much sales do they account for? And what's interesting is that the, the this kind of this measure of the usefulness of vintages of music that derive from that kind of an approach, uh, it it 
actually has risen since digitization. And it, moreover, uh, if you look at it back to, say, 1960, uh, you can compare it with other more conventional ways of, of measuring kind of how much good stuff's being produced, like best of, you know, these Rolling Stone best music ever, you know, recorded kinds of lists. Those lists tend to show you the following, that music got better from 1960 to 1970. It fell uh, from 1970. It was sort of stable through the 90s. Uh, and you get the same thing from these measures of, of vintage service flow derived from vintage and time data. So that sort of validates them. But then what's interesting is you can calculate those for this more recent period. And what's really, I think, kind of stunning is that in a period when music recorded uh, music revenue fell by about 70%, that this index of quality actually rose substantially at the same time that the number of new products created rose substantially. So it's sort of quality in, in terms of like staying power, like not like people continuing to buy it longer than they might have in the past? I think the way to think about it is is uh, how how much do people use the music that was produced in a particular year after accounting for how old it is. You know, in general, older stuff gets used less, but, you know, you can compare stuff of, a, of, of any given age produced before or before, uh, produced after digitization. And what we just see is that the stuff produced after collectively, now it's not, we're not talking about individual songs, but collectively the output, let's say, of the year 2000 or the year 2005, that, that accounts for a bigger share of usage in subsequent years than did the collective output in years like 1998. So like I'm more, would it be right to say that this, you're saying I'm more likely to listen to like the number one hit from five years ago in this year than like someone in 1990 would have been to listen to, just randomly listen to the number one hit from 1985? Yes. Okay. Yes. Couldn't that just be because now like with streaming, you know, every random impulse I get, like I remember a song, it's like, oh yeah, and I could just stream it. Whereas before I'd have to like think, oh, I never bought that album. You know, it was on the radio all the time. I never quite got the album because I didn't want to spend the 12 bucks or whatever it was. Uh, you know, so it's kind of like accessibility. So it's, it's not that just because the data from which I calculated it were data for what seems like now, uh, you know, a whole era ago, but it was data on initially sales of physical product and then later sales of uh, digital downloads back in the days when we used to buy one song at a time. I don't have the data from the streaming era uh, because, well, they're simply not available to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to hear. And, but, and this is this in terms of how much what are people are listening to it. You think you, you've also mentioned you looked at like things like best of lists and um, like critical critic views. So, there, yes. So one can look at those as well. And, and they tell similar stories in music. You can also look at them in things like movies, uh, you know, where as with music, there's been a huge increase in the number of movies created. I mean, that, that one's a separate interesting story in, in the old days the main way of making money from making a movie was to get it into theaters. But really, there aren't that many. I mean, we have a lot of screens in the U.S., but it really isn't capacity for very many distinct movies released per year. So that really put a limit on how many movies could make money. And moreover, to make money, you have to have a movie that could attract a lot of people who lived physically near a theater. 
So suppose you had just one person every 100 square miles interested in a movie. There was really no way to make money selling that movie. But of course, digitization changes that. If you can distribute your movie without theaters, if you know if every phone and every television screen is a, is a viewing venue, then a movie that attracts you know a modest number of people who aren't concentrated in any particular area can also make money as long as it doesn't cost $100 million to make that movie in the first place. And that's exactly what we have, have seen. And if you look at Things like uh, you know the aggregators of, of reviews like Rotten Tomatoes and ask you know how many movies is it that exceeds some critical threshold you know so they they map the critical reviews into a number between uh, one and a hundred and if you ask well how many movies are there past some some particular threshold uh, it has really increased very substantially in the recent period and a lot of it is not the big Hollywood movies. I mean, the big Hollywood movies still account for their share, but a lot of it is is uh, movies that are considered quite good by critics, uh, but which really wouldn't have had much of a chance to be marketed prior to this recent period. But aren't like critics and like Rotten Tomatoes kind of uh, sort of endogenous? Like they're, they kind of, I mean, I think Rotten Tomatoes even sort of calibrates, right? If you're, if you're the critic who, you know, kind of makes everything sound terrible, then maybe just sounding less terrible counts may count as a, a positive in their in their ratings and and even for individual critics they may kind of have a sense like man I just trashed the last nine movies I saw so I you know I should probably you know I don't want to make it sound like every movie's bad did, right did, but any right yeah though my my claim though is based on the the way they aggregate that up so if somebody's you know systematically cranky that's already being being taken out. Uh, this is not a claim. This is a claim about their, the average critic score that they give. And, and frankly, you can you can get this from a variety of different uh, sources of data on on how much people like things. I mean, you can you could produce something like this with even the way people rate movies at IMDb. I mean, the only thing I worry about there is that uh, there's a real recency bias because the the whole thing's only existed for a certain number of years. But I, I don't think that's what's going on. I mean, there's Again, there's an enormous increase in, in uh, the number of movies made. And uh, if you just look at the, the ones that, that even that critics like, you'll see that uh, um, there's just been a big increase in the absolute number for any threshold you choose, any high threshold you choose. Okay. Well, you mentioned, so another thing you mentioned uh, there was like, if there's a movie that maybe only whatever, one person per city or you know, some small number of people who are highly dispersed, uh, want to see that in the past that that couldn't be made, um, and and now there's more opportunity for that. So that's kind of more, less about like the the mass opinion or even like the critical uh, consent critical favorites, but just things that go to niche audiences. How how is that developed, and how do you measure that? Is that that's called the, is that the thing called the long tail? So uh, yes, and even for that matter, if you look at uh, like Rotten Tomatoes a lot of the movies that get very good critic scores are not mass appeal movies. They're movies that would appeal to a small subset of people. So I think even part of, you know, my claim about the large number of movies is there's not a large number of mass appeal movies. I think the, the really the, the growth has been in, in this sort of variety of movies, including things that, uh, that critics like. Now we can talk about the long tail too. This is a really interesting metaphor that the idea has been that, well, the internet is great. This digitization thing's great because instead of, say, a local bookstore, a big one having 50,000 titles, you know, Amazon gives me access to just to make up a number here, a million titles. It's actually a much bigger number than that. And, and the idea would be, well, 
the value of having access to that additional 950,000 titles is really good because uh, even though each of them isn't super valuable, the sum of a lot of small things is a big thing. And I think that's absolutely true. But I think this this story that I'm telling actually says that there's a much bigger deal coming from digitization. It's not just that you have access to the 950,000 unpopular titles. What really the way to think about it is digitization changes the number of, if you want to use a metaphor, number of draws that creators can take from this random earn. You know, every time they create a product, it's unpredictable whether it's going to be good. If we triple or multiply by 10, the number of draws we take, sure, we're going to have a big pile of losers, but we're going to pick up a whole lot of winners. And so to sort of stick with the long tail metaphor, some of the work I've done in papers leading up to the book was trying to measure, well, how big, how big is this? they'll say the welfare benefit from tripling the number of new products in music and the traditional long tail perspective would say, well, that's a big deal. This perspective though, that says it's not just giving access to a whole bunch of unpopular things, but rather it's producing more stuff so that we end up with more actual, absolutely popular things. My estimate uh, would be that it's about, this is about 20 times bigger source of welfare gain or benefit to consumers than to traditional long tail, all of which is to say long tail is a big deal, but digitization is sort of that and a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess, and, and having these, you know, more things, uh, more things that people have access to, access to that already exist. And then as you're saying, more things being created, uh, you know, in some sense, I don't know, well, maybe you can tell me like, how do you measure, you know, you could make an argument that the sort of mass appeal things we kind of all go to see because they're all the kind of least common denominator, you know, like, uh, you know, anyone can enjoy the latest Marvel movie or something. And, uh, but, but, you know, then the, the niche things maybe are more impactful for individuals. Like if I, you know, finally get a chance to see, you know, like my family just saw this movie Minari about, you know, uh, you know, crazy niche topic of, uh, you know, Korean guy moving his family to run a farm in, uh, you know, in the, the rural South, um, like, Actually, it seems to be doing well, so maybe it's not as niche as you might think. But but clearly, you know, that definitely came out of that that sort of land of obscurity that in the old, you know, you could never imagine like uh, one of the big film uh, companies um, getting behind that from the start. So like, uh, yeah, anyway. So can can you measure like if things are like really really important for some niche uh, group within society? The, the, so there's there's no doubt that that's true. I mean, having said that, the challenge empirically is that you know we're usually lucky when we have data at the product level, and we're lucky if we know like how many times did people watch a particular movie. It's typically very hard to know by type of person who's watching what. Uh, in the context, in other you know other research contexts where I've had that data, that's really important, really true. I used to study U.S. media markets, and I'd look at ethnic diversity and you know African Americans versus whites and, and and Hispanics and non-Hispanics, and preferences were enormously different. That is, which products, which radio stations, and newspapers were being consumed. So, by extension, it's really natural to expect that uh, anything that makes it lower cost to produce things, so that even smaller audiences with different tastes can get what they want. It's it's very natural to think digitization would be a great bonanza for uh, for 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 that, you know, for for small groups and and that that analysis works well thinking internationally or groups within countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned. I mean, this is always a challenge uh, for for uh, practical economists uh, working in academia, right? We have to work with the data we can get. Have you have you had any uh, luck working with uh, any of the firms in the 
uh, in any of these sectors, uh, getting like proprietary data that might give you a more detailed look at stuff, or they uh, guard that too closely and you just kind of have to go with what you can scrape off the internet or whatever else. So by and large, I, I either have gotten my data from uh, public sources, or in some cases, I had a research partnership with the European Commission for a number of years and uh, helping them work on or working with them on uh, kind of creating a body of evidence relevant to copyright policy. And so they were able to buy some pretty expensive third-party data, which uh, which was useful to look at. I, I haven't, uh, I mean, one of the challenges uh, for, I think, today's economists working, trying to get access to data is if you get data from a company, they have say over whether you get to, you know, <laughs> divulge it, right? right? They have to like the results. So uh, I think it's important. I mean, it, it, it is a hard world because some companies don't really share much. I mean, so Spotify, which is a current obsession of mine, and I think many people uh, as a research object and as a fascinating company, at least they have the, uh, the, the, the great well, decency is not the right word, but it's wonderful that they at least disclose the top 200 songs streaming by day by country and the number of streams. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's sort of a pittance compared to the 50 whatever million songs they have on the service. But still, it's amazing to have some glimpse. I mean, other companies like Apple share nothing. Uh, Amazon is doesn't share any information, but it's not that hard to glean some things from their their website. So by and large, I, I exist on the scraps I can find in, out in the world. Okay. No, fair enough. That at least keeps your keeps your your hands clean and your your judgments uh, more unbiased. I know a lot of people, you know, working on different aspects of the digital economy have uh, partnered with these firms, and you know there is, uh, I think they try to work out agreements ahead of time, uh, being clear that there won't be any uh, adjustments to the results or you know canceling stuff um, if it doesn't uh, present the right image. But it's hard for it's hard for any outsider to be one hundred percent confident that that that's. Uh, you know, it's not being shaped by those kind of considerations. Yeah, no, I mean, I and I don't think people uh, are are, uh, are are sneaky about this. It's just it's a huge challenge. How do you do research, empirical research, without data? And so, yeah, it's just a, an interesting world to navigate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, um, well, uh, moving, shifting gears a little bit. Um, one. Uh, Let's talk about some some newer topics uh, or things that are in the news that you ha- didn't have time to uh, address in the book. Um, so, uh, what do you think of non fungible tokens? So, uh, I, I'm scratching my head a bit about them because, on the one hand, you know, the whole idea of digitization was that uh, this is this is a technology that allows essentially a perfect quality object to be reproduced at zero additional cost. And so that that makes for all kinds of, you know, business models and availability probably at low prices. And the whole idea of a non-fungible token is to take something that can be reproduced, but to make it uh, not so much non-reproducible, but to give somebody a unique right to it, but a funny kind of unique right, because it doesn't seem to prevent anyone else from also viewing the image. So my first thought was, my goodness, this sounds like a weird kind of f- fake scarcity. And, and uh, you know, I hear the inner Marxist, and not that I have one, saying this is bad. On the other hand, there's nothing wrong with it, because after all, it doesn't seem to forbid anyone else from also using it. And it's a way for the creator, I guess, to get paid extra. So it seems like this is just unambiguously good, except for the vulgarity of it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it creates more revenue that goes to creators, I guess that's good. And what was the example of the, uh, the, um, uh, forgetting his name, the guy who had, uh, Screlly, Martin Screlly had, had purchased like one copy of one album, um, that everyone would have loved to hear. And he made sure that was the only copy just so he could have it. Right. Um, but at least letting, giving him a chance to do that without actually excluding anyone else from having it. Um, 
seems like best of both worlds. Yeah, it seems, that seems innocuous. So I'm thinking I should figure out a way to do a non-fungible token for uh, my deadweight loss of Christmas paper, which since non-economists know about it, maybe there's some billionaire who took an economics class in the last few years who wants the NFT on that. I think you should go for it, right? It's, uh, well, I don't, it seems like a zero cost. Of, I don't know what the cost is to produce the NFT. Or I guess there may be climate, you know, uh, externalities of uh, climate change from all this, uh, like, random computing uh, power that's being allocated to something that doesn't actually create art. So maybe there's some some loss there. But, yeah, fair. Uh, anyway, but if you can pick up, you know, twenty fifty thousand uh, $50,000 for your paper, uh, then that does sound pretty good. Yeah, I could give some of it to charity for sure. There you go. Yeah, you should you should donate it all to climate change. As should everyone who's who's not an absolute starving artist who uh, who makes money off the NFTs. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out there and say that because I'm probably never gonna have an NFT, so it's easy for me to do. Um, so uh, so how about um, you know your your book um, came out uh, was it two years ago? So based yeah, on research over 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 a few years prior to that, you know, a series of papers that you've written and published in the academic journals. Um, so, you know, what other things are you seeing in the world? I mean, obviously that the pandemic, you know, NFTs is a more minor, you know, interesting one, but, um, how has the pandemic and other trends kind of, uh, played out? Have you seen anything different or that might lead you to change your conclusions about, uh, the digital Renaissance or anything so, just interesting that's coming up? Yeah. So a couple things, I think the the pandemic of course has been horrible. Let's be clear. But I think about how much worse the pandemic would be uh, without digitization in, in so many respects. I mean, of course, there are the Zoom meetings we're all tired of, but also just, I mean, look at the, the if you look at uh, theatrical box office revenue, of course, for good reason, it's fallen to almost zero. It's beginning to come back a little bit now. But there are a lot of ways to both consume movies and to generate revenue having people consume movies during the pandemic uh, because of digitization. So that's kind of exciting. I think production's fallen off, but I mean, revenue generation hasn't fallen off nearly as much as, as, as the traditional, you know, physical modes of revenue generation. I think it's, it's much tougher for musicians. Their live performance was a very important aspect, uh, but at least for movies, it's, it's been good. And for music, uh, the recorded part of music, it has continued to be much better than it would otherwise have been. So I feel, again, I don't want to say no, nobody likes the pandemic, but it would have been a lot worse without digitization. Right. Yeah. I mean, so many things, you know, yeah, in the art sector and obviously in, in the rest of our lives, if we were, if this were 1900, we'd be, uh, we'd have probably gone through all the books in our house 50 times and uh, played Monopoly uh, 2,000 times and be pretty pretty sick of all that. So it is nice that we have this uh, constant flow of, uh, of new things to try and an ability to communicate with people also outside our houses um, without, uh, um, without having to be face-to-face. I think the other kind of non-pandemic thing, but sort of post-book thing that I've been thinking about a lot uh, for, with, you know, concerning these industries has been the the growth of the importance of of platforms and it's uh go to music again i mean 20 25 years ago there were okay a few big record labels then there were literally thousands of record stores that were independently owned and thousands of radio stations that were independently run and operated until 1996 you could only own a few radio stations in the u.s so it's really a whole bunch of independent decision makers i mean in fact prior to digitization, I think people started to get upset that Walmart had a, you know, a so-called big fraction of retailing, and this is going to somehow concentrate music. Well, fast forward to today, 
the roles of radio and record stores, so promotion and distribution, are played directly by the platforms themselves because they promote via their playlists and then they generate revenue by whatever gets played and they send checks to labels who send checks to artists. And there are essentially two decision makers left. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little, but if you say it's Apple Music and Spotify, there are two decision makers left playing the role used to be played by thousands of record stores and thousands of radio stations. So this is an interesting time. Uh, you know, if you thought Walmart was scary, this is really an interesting time. Uh, you know, it's, it's the platform, you know, G GFAM concern carried over into the music context. So, so that's something that's that's going on and certainly occupying a lot of people's attention. Yeah. So how do you, do you think is that, is that good or bad? I mean, in general, right. We people worry about the way the public discourse is being shaped by, you know, news items and whatever that gets, you know, amplified by, by various algorithms or, or suppressed. And, and certainly it's different from the old system where for better or worse, it was maybe, you know, a, a small number of influential individuals who, you know, mainly wanted to make money, but may have also had some artistic tastes or a sense of what was, you know, good or bad for, the artistic community they cared about. Now it's, it seems like it's much more, you know, folks near me in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, like writing algorithms and they're concerned about, you know, metrics like engagement and, you know, how many downloads, how many repeat downloads, how long do you spend listening? Uh, and, and none of it really has much to do with, you know, it's only indirectly related to whether you're even happy with what you have, um, let alone with any kind of artistic quality. So is that, is that pushing us in bad directions? So I, I don't see any evidence that it is. I can imagine reasons to be worried and I can imagine reasons to want to pay attention. But let's let's take the example of music at Spotify, for example. I mean, in the old days, there weren't that many ra uh, radio stations. There were a lot of these independent decision makers. But if you thought, well, how many songs are actually going to get substantially on the radio? So get sort of to get their thought, their shot, excuse me, at being promoted. The answer was not a huge number. Uh, I mean, now, the, the number of songs entering Spotify each year is a number like 5 million. Now, they don't all get promoted in any substantial way, but there's tens of thousands, literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands that are making it onto, onto playlists uh, that Spotify runs and that therefore Spotify can, can discover based on how consumers respond to these songs. And so I think in, in some ways, it's a much more democratic world now, even though it's all going through, or not all, but much of it's going through a small number of players because they are able to distribute the testing out, if you will, across many, many individuals listening to many, many different playlists instead of having to use a high cost, you know, three minute slot on a Los Angeles radio station. I mean, imagine how expensive that was compared to having, you know, a thousand people listen to a song on a, on a playlist. So I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, th there's reason to be uh, very, very optimistic about the capacity of this new system, even with a small number of players to find a lot of good music. But we probably still should be very concerned about sort of the negotiation, the market power that these guys might have with respect to the suppliers of, of music to them. Yeah, I mean, just to, you know, uh, complain about something I just noticed recently, uh, you know, on Amazon, for instance, they used to have uh, near the top of, you know, after you picked the after you look, you know, typed in a book, then it give you that book and it'd say people who bought this book also bought or people who like this book also liked. And I realized that now in that same slot, there's a list of books and they're all promoted books. And then there's actually, if you, you have to kind of scroll down and then there'll be, there's even more pro like promoted books where maybe like paid advertising. And then you have to have to scroll like past, I think now all of the reviews, like, you know, three or four screens down to actually get to the point where it actually gives you something which is organic based on like 
you know, people who liked this book actually bought some other books. So they're kind of, you know, first of all, it feels, it feels a little bit misleading. So if anyone from Amazon bothers to listen to this, you know, come on guys, you're annoying me and you're making me like you less, which maybe it's nothing I can do about that because they have so much market power, but, um, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, the, the worry there is right. That, that they, they, because of their commercial incentives, you know, just as with search or anything else might skew, skew the results in a way that, that, um, is in their commercial interest or, or, you know, is bought, you know, just like the old payola, right. It's kind of bought a bot slot instead of a real slot. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the, uh, the, we're talking a lot about Spotify, a company that I, that I find fascinating. I mean, they, they, a non-trivial share of that company is owned by the major record labels, which is also, of course, their biggest suppliers because that's where the music, the most valuable music tends to come from. So you could imagine that they would have, they could have incentives to push that music more than they push other music. I mean, that said, I've actually done a paper trying to look at that. And, and what I what I see in their new music playlist, the new Music Friday playlists, is that if anything, those lists seem to be pushing non-major label music a bit, promoting them at higher ranks than you otherwise would have expected. So there's reason to be vigilant, but I don't see evidence of, of the kinds of shenanigans that we could imagine uh, at Spotify. Well, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, they... Uh... Yeah, because certainly, yeah, there's so so much influence there, and and it is right. That's the that's the upside. If they're if they're get helping us get access to music that uh, you know wouldn't have come over the mainstream radio station um, uh, or been featured in the the Tower Records or whatever uh, thirty years ago, but um, actually really uh, really works for us um, or works for you know specific people and makes them happy. Um, so so yeah, so you mentioned you're interested in Spotify but can't get data. Um, uh, what kind of stuff are you working on now? So I've been working broadly on this question of product discovery. I mean, so my, you know, the, the book claims to find evidence, and I think it does find evidence that uh, the people are really enjoying uh, the products that they're discovering, but that there is this bit of a black box. How are they finding it? And so uh, to jump away finally from Spotify for a bit, let's think about books. I mean, it used to be the people relied on on uh, book reviews. I mean, to the extent, maybe word of mouth, but but book reviews and the biggest uh, producer of book reviews uh, measured both by number of reviews and number of readers was the New York Times. They were reviewing a couple thousand books a year to a moderately large audience. That still leaves the vast, vast, vast majority of books not being reviewed in any high profile way. But then with digitization, you have these things like Amazon star ratings, you know, consumers leave star ratings and Amazon tries to, you know, make sure that they're not entirely fraudulent. Uh, and, and a question so that, that raises a couple of questions, you know, are these star ratings, do they, do they actually affect what people buy? And given that they're available for every book and not just a few thousand books that the elites choose to review, you know, how big is the effect of these star ratings on basically the, the well-being that consumers derive by again, guiding them toward books that they might like. And a paper I'm just uh, publishing now with the co-author Imka Reimers, you know, we find that actually the effect of the of the, uh, the star ratings is like an order of magnitude bigger than the effect of the, uh, of the reviews collectively. Not surprisingly, in retrospect, because every book gets star ratings, you know, that it's a bigger deal to get a New York Times review than to be have star ratings on Amazon per book, but every book gets them. And it's not just the books in genres that elites uh, tend to care about. So it's, it's, it's really kind of interesting. And it also means as an author, you know, even if you can't get the traditional kind of promotion, there still are ways for consumers to discover you uh, using these sort of digitally enabled information institutions. 
So are the star ratings, are they informative? I was actually just uh, in a, in my class yesterday uh, discussing with students uh, one of the presented paper by, um, I think, John Horton at MIT and some other people on uh, the um, basically the inflation of star ratings. Like they've gone from an average of like three, in, in, in across a wide range of fields, they've gone from an average of three stars like eight years ago when they started to become ubiquitous. And now it's like you almost always give someone a five-star or maybe you give them a one star because and that because you hate them, but like there's very little in between, um, and so they become sort of less informative. Well, I mean, even within title, if you look at the variation within title over a relatively short period, so the study looks just at a year, even just that within title variation is enough to identify uh, their their causal impacts. Now, it is true the average is not a three; it's not like an old fashioned bell curve for grading, mm-hmm. but uh, but nevertheless. They do seem to actually have uh, an effect on, and I should say that the variation within title over time does seem to have an effect on uh, on the tendency for people to purchase the books. So even if there is inflation, that's not going to account for this this uh, this effect that we document. Okay, and so get, to get to get more more economist technical, how do you how do you get the causality there? Because if lots of people are buying and liking the book, they might just be rating it better. Are you looking at like at least like? like how current ratings affect future sales? Is that? So what we do is we look at, we have the uh, multiple platforms and daily data. So what we can look at is the same title and we can look both at the change in, in the star ratings uh, within this platform for this title over time. Uh, and we can also look at the change in this title of this platform relative to the, the change in rating for this title on, on a different platform. So we can make use of both a within, uh, both within book approach and also within book that differences across, uh, across platforms. Okay. And again, it's, and it's not the, it's not how many people rate it. It's the star rating that it has. And there's also a little bit of an integer issue that we can exploit, uh, which is that, uh, uh, they, they only report the star rating to, uh, to one decimal place. But anyways, uh, that's, that's the approach oh, okay. that we use. Yeah. So you can, right, right. So you can look at like increments of like, just, just, yeah, sort of a discontinuity sort of approach. I mean, I mean, the, the surely to look across books would be, would, would be folly, but at least within book and with daily data, you actually can, can do a bit more. So we're, we feel okay about that. Okay. Um, all right. Well, um, as a last thing before we wrap up, um, I want to introduce um, something that, uh, well, so as, as you know, a, a new podcaster, so I'm here uh, putting out my potentially low quality material for, for evaluation of the world um, because it's uh, low cost. And I felt like, and I get a chance to talk to people like you um, uh, just for fun. So that, that's good for me. I'm, hope, I'm hoping the listeners like it and uh, um, it gives me some incentive to continue on that front. Um but uh, I'm also uh, in the spirit of piracy, um, although I know you don't approve of it. Um, I wanted to pirate an idea from uh, another podcast I like, which I'll, I'll also recommend, um, which is the Seneca podcast which by Kaiser Guo, which is on, uh, on China. So it may not be of interest to uh, people reading your book. But if you want to learn more about China, it's a great podcast. And something he always does at the end of the podcast is asks uh, his um, guests to make a recommendation of something, you know, uh, in addition to whatever you know, they want to promote of their own work, um, what uh, tell us something else that uh, listeners um, sh- might be interested to or should check out? Well, uh, the most of the most of the uh, cultural examples I study are really popular culture, and so maybe it's 
interesting, at least to me, that during the pandemic, I found myself uh, rediscovering a lot of classical music, in particular, uh, Beethoven's piano sonatas. So I, I really recommend checking them out. They're available on Spotify, too. <laughs> I have to tell you, okay, so um, there was a mention of a Beethoven piano sonata in uh, a book I was reading for um, with one of my kids, a fantasy novel, and it was apparently listening to this sonata somehow gave you the ability to access another universe. So pretty cool. So we had to listen to it, but it's, um, so my high school French is terrible, but Beethoven's Pathétique. And then when we wanted to listen to it on um, Alexa, uh, she had no idea what we we're talking about. Um, <laughs> and I learned and, and I figured out, which I, I now take very uh, Luddite glee in um, doing is, is if I yell out Beethoven's pathetic, then it immediately finds the right thing. If I try to pr- pronounce it anything approaching the actual French or, or in any authentic way, it doesn't work. But if I just uh, mangle it completely, um, then then I get it. And it's a very nice, it's a very nice piano piece. So I would encourage people to, to check it out. Um, and also to have the fun of, of telling their Alexa that Beethoven's pathetic and see what happens. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, that's, uh, that's about all the time, uh, we have. So thanks so much for being on the show. It was a really uh, fun conversation and I think, uh, really informative. Oh, my pleasure. Okay. Well, and I hope, uh, when we get, uh, a new book from you someday, uh, we'll, we'll have you back. I would love that. 